Big Thinking, celebrating 175 years of Bradley College with fascinating speakers from our community. So good evening and a warm welcome to another Big Thinking talk. And these are a series of TED style talks designed and developed as part of Bradley's 175th year of celebrations. These talks are designed to reveal the breadth of thinking that sits within the Radley community and feature perspectives from Dons, old Radleyans, and Radley parents and boys. Their aim is to inspire and to challenge and to encourage us all to reflect on our future world. And now, stepping up to our virtual podium, I would like to introduce Jamie Arbib, who is the co-founder of Rethink X, a not-for-profit think tank that produces research on technology disruptions and their impact on society. He works with governments, businesses, and investors to prepare for these impacts. Tonight, Jamie is going to talk about rethinking humanity. He believes we're on the cusp of some of the most consequential transformation of human civilization in our history. And as a result, it is vital that we adapt and think differently about our future and about our humanity. After the talk, Ian Yorston, physics Don and digital expert will facilitate the Q&A session. So please do load questions up onto the chat function as we go. And now, finally, that's enough from me. Over to you, Jamie. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Caroline. And it's, it's great to be here this evening. Thank you for inviting me. So I left Radley in, in, in 1990 uh, with no real clear plan. And, and, and I find myself, having just turned 50, still without a plan. Uh, I never thought I'd end up doing what I am today. Uh, I, occasionally, I get referred to as a futurist, which is a, is a term I, I hate. Um, you know, I, I have no better idea than anyone else on this call about what's coming. But I think what we do have at Rethink X is a different perspective, uh, certainly on where we are today, maybe a different way to explain the seeming chaos of the world around us, uh, and, and also a different idea of, of the possibilities coming into the future. Um, so I, I just wanted to start by giving a little bit of background, um, I, I guess a part of my journey that led to the foundation of Rethink X about eight years ago and then look forward at some of the technological changes that are coming and think about how they might help us solve some of the kind of seemingly intractable problems that we have in society today. So I, I was doing some work out in Washington with the US, with the US military about um, eight years ago or so. And, and, and as part of that, I got invited to attend the scenario planning day that they were running. Uh, and they were asking the question, you know, what will it mean for, for geopolitics and for US military capabilities if we transition off fossil fuels quicker than we're expecting. Uh, and they invited a bunch of experts along to kind of brief them and, 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 and lay out their scenarios. And it was an extraordinary day. It was probably the most intimidating room I've ever been in, actually. It was, it was full of kind of admirals and generals and, 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 and just incredible questioning. Um, but I, I sat through this day and, and eight of the 10 experts who came along from kind of big august institutions, you know, the State Department, BP, um, Exxon and so on, um, all had pretty much identical forecasts for the adoption of electric vehicles, the adoption of solar PV and batteries and so on, looking out to, say, 2050 or so. And they had these kind of low incremental straight line forecasts that saw even by 2050, maybe 20 percent adoption in the most aggressive forecasts. I remember this guy called Tony Sieber, who, who teaches technology disruption at, at, at Stanford, getting up when it was his turn to talk and saying, look, you know, this isn't how technology disruption unfolds. It's not this kind of slow incremental progression. You know, it's rapid. It's nonlinear. 
It's the S-curve of technology disruption that we see in technologies time and time again. And these disruptions are over by the 2030s. We'll, be, we'll have a fully renewable electric power system and, and, and a fully electric vehicle fleet. Um, and, and, and you know, he said, if you're going to make your decisions based on these faulty forecasts that these big institutions are giving you, you're going to make some major mistakes. And I basically said the same thing. And I, I, I remember walking out of that room and taking Tony for a coffee and sitting down and talking about everything from, you know, healthcare to food and agriculture to finance and banking, um, you know, as well as, um, you know, transport and energy. And, and, and in our view, you know, we felt that we were on the cusp of fundamental transformations of each of those sectors. And yet governments, businesses, investors were totally unaware of how quickly they might happen and how profoundly they might affect, affect society. And this matters because if you want to make decisions today about the future, if you want to plan an energy system or a pension system, you need to have relatively accurate expectations about what's coming or at least the possibilities that are coming. And so we went away and after a few months of talking, we set up RethinkX, which is a not-for-profit research organization, really with the aim of providing better analysis for, 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 for decision makers across society to take better decisions. Um, and, and so I wanna share a little bit of, of, of that work with you today. But to start, I just wanna give you a, a, a little complex systems 101, because at the heart of our work, at the heart of the framework we've built to understand what's coming, uh, is an understanding of complex systems. Now, it sounds scary. It sounds uh, intimidating as a word, but it's actually pretty simple. And understanding complex systems can throw an enormous light on how change can unfold. So I'm going to use the climate system as an example to try and explain. So the climate system is like any other complex system, the human body's one. You know, any sector of the economy are complex systems as well. And the process of change and the pattern of change is the same in them all. The pattern that you see is, is one of kind of incremental progress or equilibrium stasis over long periods of, 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 of time interspersed with periods of very rapid change where the system will flip from one state into another. So the climate's a great example. And, and, and we're currently in an equilibrium phase. Right? So we're emitting huge quantities of greenhouse gases into our atmosphere today. But most of those greenhouse gases are being sucked up by the oceans or by plant growth. And then what's called negative feedback loops, they act to constrain change. So we emit huge quantities of greenhouse gases, but the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gas is not rising by nearly as much as it would have done in the absence of those forces. And so that's keeping us in equilibrium, that's keeping us in a stable state, which is great. The worry comes though, when we get to a point when we exceed certain thresholds. And when we do that, we trigger a tipping point where those negative feedback loops begin to break down. So they no longer constrain change. And we trigger what are known as accelerating feedback loops that act to accelerate change. So we get to a certain point in time and the oceans warm up and stop absorbing carbon dioxide. And, and, and instead of absorbing it, they release it. But also we see the ice caps melting and, um, and, and more of the Earth's energy getting trapped in our, in, in our atmosphere. We might see the Arctic tundra melting, releasing methane. These things are reinforcing. They lead to, they lead to increases in, in greenhouse gas emissions, increases in concentrations in the atmosphere, and ultimately increases in temperature. And that's the worry is that we hit this tipping point. 
and we trigger runaway climate change and we tip very quickly over the course of a few decades into a new system several degrees higher. So that's the essence of complex systems. It's really a, a, a battle between the constraining, the forces that constrain change and the forces that accelerate change. And the same processes work in the economy when we think about how new technologies come into markets. So I'm going to start very quickly um, and run you through just three sectors of the economy that we've covered, transport, energy, and food, and give you a flavor of what might be coming and how these disruptions might unfold, and then begin to look at what that might mean for society more generally. So first of all, transportation. So I think we're all aware that there's sort of an electric vehicle revolution going on as we speak, and that's driven by the cost of electric vehicles. We've seen battery costs drop by 90% over the last decade. So electric vehicles are becoming more and more disruptive. They started at the top of the market, disrupting expensive high-end cars. And as they've come down in price and the capabilities have improved, they're opening up more and more of the market and they're beginning to disrupt the middle of the market. And we expect within two or three years, They'll disrupt the bottom of the market. We're seeing in China and India already electric vehicles that can do a couple of hundred miles of range, costing less than $10,000. So this is, this is a, a revolution that's really driven by economics, not by government policy or, 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 or any other reasons. It's raw economics that drives um, disruption. It's the cost and capability of technology. And what happens is, as, as um, demand increases, as people begin buying electric vehicles, is you trigger these feedback loops. And they're both vicious cycles for the old industry and a virtuous cycle for the new. So for the new industry, you know, increasing demand leads to increasing economies of scale, which leads to lower cost, which leads to more investment in, 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 in the new system, which leads to sort of government support moving and regulation changing. And you get this kind of virtuous cycle where demand increases and costs come down and, and, and there's this continual improvement that helps drive change. And the existing industry, gasoline cars, uh, in this instance, go into the reverse. We're seeing demand drying up. We're seeing um, economies of scale begin to reverse. We'll soon see costs. We've already seen margin compression and we'll soon we'll see costs begin to rise. We're seeing all the investment that, that legacy automakers are making move from investing in gasoline cars, which are no longer improving, into electric and autonomous vehicles. And so very quickly, we'll see, we'll see this disruption play out. And we think by 2030 that no more new vehicles will be gasoline. And that won't be because of government bans. It will purely because of these processes of disruption. And that's pretty typical of a disruption. We see between 10 and 15 years a total transformation of the market. There's no halfway point. There's no kind of um, prospect of the two living together in tandem. It happens because you drive these feedback loops that lead to the destruction of the old and the improvement of the new. But that's just the first phase of disruption. The second phase is much more interesting because as we get autonomous, um, as we get vehicle autonomy developed, we'll no longer need a, need a driver. Now, the big difference between an electric vehicle and a gasoline vehicle is that there are no moving parts, really. There are 20 moving parts compared to 2,000 moving parts in a gasoline vehicle. So there's much less to go wrong. There's no degradation. We're seeing vehicles designed today that can last for a million miles, and that includes the battery. And that's transformational. In the private ownership model, where we all own our own cars, it's kind of useless. Right? We do 10,000, 12,000 miles a year. 
you know, it would last for 100 years. Um, so, so we don't get the benefit of that. But when you go into a what we call transport as a service, essentially a robo-taxi type market, where these cars are used all the time, that's really useful. And so these cars can last a million miles. You can spread the upfront cost of the car over a million miles. Right? Each mile costs just one one millionth of the cost of the car. Now, the cost of um, repairs and maintenance are far, far lower. The cost of um, electricity to power them is far, far lower. So the cost of transportation will drop, we think, by an order of magnitude over the current model we have today. And it will get so low, certainly in cities where these cars are used a lot, where actually we think entirely new business models will emerge that allow the platforms that provide the service, the transport service to monetize the user in a whole host of ways and offer transport for free in the same way that Facebook and Google are free to the user. They monetize you in other ways. And that's transformational. And that will lead to an even more rapid disruption and turn the market, the transport market, totally on its head and obviously have cascading impacts on the oil market and all, all other kinds of attached markets to the, to the transport industry. Um, very quickly, the energy disruption, similar disruption, also driven by the cost of batteries. So the batteries that have been feeding our, our electric vehicles have dropped so far now that they're becoming competitive in grid storage. They're beginning to disrupt parts of the electric power market. But really, the disruption is driven by the combination of solar, wind, and batteries. And it, this is a disruption that's really badly understood. So, so, so it starts again with cost. So we've seen, we've seen batteries come down by 90% over a decade, solar by 80%, wind by about 50%. And we expect similar drops over the next decade. Solar in most parts of the world is the cheapest form of power. And so we've seen the, the new build market for electric power largely disrupted. Over 50% of, 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 of new build power generation is now renewables. But actually, it's a fundamentally different beast. And this is a key element of disruption. The, 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 the market that emerges, the other side of the disruption, looks nothing like the, 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 the market that existed previously. So when you build a fully renewable electric power system, the way you do it, the way you get through the kind of northern winter, which is the problem when solar resources are low, is that you massively overbuild generating capacity. You essentially supersize the system. And because the cost of solar is dropping so much, it will still be by far the cheapest way to meet demand. And what you get when you do that, and you've got this huge amount of, of, of generating capacity to try and minimize the amount of storage you need, is you get a market that behaves totally different. For the rest of the year, this ele electric power system produces far too much power, at just a superabundance, essentially, of free energy. Now, when you look at it through the lens of the old, you see that as a problem. And we're talking today about turning off the windmills or curtailing the solar because we have too much of it. But actually, it's a huge opportunity. We'll use that. That incentive of zero-cost power will transform industry after industry. So we could use that, that, that electricity, for instance, to make hydrogen, or we could use it in steel production, or we could use it in, um, I mean, almost any kind of high-energy-use high industry that we have today where demand is shiftable. But actually, it will enable entirely new industries as well, things like vertical farming that today are you know, far too expensive because of the energy costs, we'll be able to benefit from that. And it might crystallize a whole new industry there and a host of other industries. In the same way, the internet, when it came along and offered essentially zero cost information and, and, and communications, 
triggered a host of other new opportunities that we couldn't have imagined at the outset. And we think the same thing will happen with electric power. We'll end up with a vastly lower cost system that is more resilient, not dependent on any foreign energy supplies, and is, and, and is vastly cheaper with no emissions. And it will be driven again by the economics. Now, the food disruption is kind of super interesting in some ways. And it's, it's, it's the one that's in its inception. But it's, it's a fascinating disruption because we've, we're beginning to learn new ways, essentially, to produce um, proteins without growing animals. So it's really a disruption of livestock farming that I'm talking about. And there are a number of ways of doing it. But the key way is a process called precision fermentation. It's not that dissimilar to brewing beer. And what we do is we hack microbes to produce a protein. And it can be any protein with any properties that we want it to be. So we can design, for instance, human milk proteins. In fact, the first protein to produce, produce this way was human insulin. So back in the early 80s, scientists managed to produce human insulin by using microbes. And that replaced insulin that came from the pancreas of a pig or a cow. And so in the old days, it took about 50,000 animals to provide a kilo of insulin, uh, and 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 over and it was obviously an inferior product. But as we began to produce um, human insulin in this way, obviously a much better product, the cost came down, and so the first kilo cost about a billion dollars back in the 1980s, and today we've dropped to below the cost of a hundred dollars per kilo. So it's been on this extraordinary cost curve. And within a few years, it'll be down below about $10 per kilo, which is where it becomes competitive with milk proteins and other animal meat proteins. So we're about to see, towards the end of this decade, a, 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 a massive pro a process of disruption of animal farming, which will be transformational because this new system requires a fraction of the land input. It requires a fraction of the energy, requires a, um, a, a fraction of, 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 um, of the cost as well, because the cost of producing food will be much, much cheaper, and there'll be no volatility or no security issues around the food system as well. It's a totally different model of production. You know, instead of kind of growing the whole plant and animal and breaking it down into all the different parts and things that we need, we're turning the model on its head. We're starting with a single molecule, essentially and building up from there. And that kind of dictates how, how the disruption will play out. We'll start with the kind of single molecules of the milk proteins, the casein, the whey, and so on. And, 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 and over time, we'll disrupt other parts of that value chain. And, and we think by the late 2030s, pretty much that whole market will be disrupted. Because what happens when you, when you disrupt all these subsidiary products is the cost of the remaining products go up. A cow is broken down. There's a thing called carcass balancing, where the cow is broken down into hundreds of different products. And as you disrupt, say, the leather market, and we produce leather through these alternative processes, the hide might become a cost to dispose of rather than an asset to sell. And as you can't sell more and more pieces, and you're left with just a stake eventually, the cost of that stake will be enormous compared to where it is today. And so the cost of the old goes up as the cost of the new continues to come down. And that's why we think there's a hugely rapid disruption here. So together, those disruptions are going to have a profound effect. And they're going to have profound impacts that cascade across society and kind of affect everything. And this is really why we set up Rethink X, so we could see and anticipate how quickly these things might happen. 
and how profoundly they might accept might affect society because these these disruptions don't happen in isolation that they happen together we have to understand how they interact how the energy market will transform all kinds of other sectors of the economy and so on and when we look at say climate change we see it in a very different way so climate change yes is a problem but we think we have all the solutions and that actually market forces will deliver most of that solution so you know transport energy and food together account for about 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions and we see a, a, a transformation of those industries over the next two decades and yes there will be some legacy um emissions that are hard to abate hard to disrupt but we'll have options for what we do because as we disrupt livestock farming we'll disrupt we will change the use of 80% of our farmland like 80% of our land goes to supporting livestock either through pasture land or by producing food to feed these animals and that's profound because we have choices we can reforest that land we can rewild that land it, it can become a carbon sink and it can provide an opportunity for the communities of farmers and communities affected to actually have far better jobs as stewards of that land and that's cheap carbon abatement essentially or carbon sequestration but low cost energy as well opens us enormous options to sequester carbon at much lower costs than we're anticipating we think there are a number of ways that we can use these new technologies and the super abundance of energy to sequester carbon at almost any scale we can imagine and by 2040 or so we'd expect the ceiling on a carbon price to be about 10 that we can sequester as much as we want below that in ways that have little um adverse impact elsewhere and industries like shipping that we think are hard to abate today will will be dis- will be disrupted because the need for shipping's disrupted as we stop transporting huge quantities of fossil fuels of cars and animal products around and production localizes much more because we automate labor and we're not taking advantage of cheap chinese labor anymore we'll see a we'll see a we'll, we'll we'll see a transformation of the economy and we'll move to a world where the physical flows of resources and goods through that system diminish dramatically to be replaced by vast information flows and that's really what's happening because this is a transformation of the system we're moving for a kind of centralized world based on scarce resources based essentially on extracting and exploiting scarce resources from as far a field as we can reach to one where all the inputs into that system are available locally everywhere in the world and in abundance it's the molecules the cells the photons and electrons that we need to build pretty much anything we want that we can harness locally and we can share the information the blueprints and the plans across the globe so a totally different kind of structure to our production system and a far lower cost and far less impactful system so the costs of the goods we need drop dramatically meaning that um you know we solve poverty we solve inequality we have all kinds of um different possibilities that emerge geopolitics becomes a far less acute issue we're not dependent on scarce resources constrained to certain parts of the world the transformation of, essentially of the causes of war ideology and resource scarcity transformed by this new system and ultimately 
It's a system that might transform the way we organize ourselves and the way we govern ourselves. Because, and, and I'm not going to go too far off beat here, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and bring it back actually a little bit because I, I know I'm running out of time. But um, if you're interested in hearing more about the impacts on, on society more generally, we wrote a book a couple of years ago called Rethinking Humanity that you can find on our website. And it's, it's down, you can download it for free. It's available there. We look at what this new system means for the way we govern and organize ourselves because it's profound. Because this kind of centralization and hierarchy, even the nation state, are kind of constructs that emerged out of that old extraction-based system. We needed scale and reach to be able to access the resources and the labor that we needed to, to fire our system. But as we move to this much more distributed system where you know, the resources and the, and the labor, the, 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 the people, people and planet, are available in abundance locally. It's transformational. Governance structures, we would expect to change to mirror that over time. Now, it's going to be a long and slow process. But in some ways, kind of nation states become somewhat redundant in this world. At least, you know, over, over, over the long periods, they, they serve different purposes. Um, so I think I'll just try and finish by saying, look, you know, the world can seem a kind of crazy and scary place today. And when you're kind of down in the weeds, it feels like there's a lot of turmoil. But what's really happening and what we're seeing across, across the board is really the end of an age, the collapse of an old system that, that, that spans every sector of the economy and the emergence of a new system built on fundamentally different principles. And that's always going to be a difficult period. It always has been in history. But at the end of that, at the end of that process, if we get through that, that difficult period of time, you know, a world exists that is potentially much more resilient, much more self-sufficient, much more sustainable, much more prosperous, much more prosperous and much more equitable. But it's going to be a rocky road to get there. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, Jamie, that was fantastic. Um, fascinating and challenging in, uh, in equal measure. And as you say, uh, scary and crazy place in the world. Um, the good news is that lots of people are asking lots of intelligent questions. Um, the bad news is I'm going to ask a couple of questions of my own first before um, before we turn to those. You left Radley in 1990. I think I taught your younger brother because I arrived shortly after you'd gone and I wasn't avoiding the place because of you, obviously. Um, but in 1990, I was just getting dragged into the first Gulf War uh, as an electronic warfare officer. And one of my observations would be that pretty much all the tech that we were playing with in 1990 is now in my iPhone. And you were talking about the fact that, you know, one of the things that had really influenced you was that meeting in, uh, in Washington with the American military. And I'm very struck by the fact that, you know, what happened in the Second World War massively influenced the next sort of 30, 40 years. And it tends to be the transformational changes of warfare that then drift into um, our lives. Uh, and I wonder what you think is going to come out of, uh, out of Ukraine as a result of that. You know, what... what is happening in Ukraine that is going to start changing the world. Uh, you did allude to the idea that um, there wouldn't be any national borders anymore, and I'm not quite sure what Putin is going to make of not having any national yeah. borders to cross. I think that's you know that's a, a long way off in 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 many ways. But I mean you, you know Ukraine. I actually going back to that meeting, that military meeting. I remember this. My, well, who's now my co-founder, Tony Sieber, um, asking the U.S. military if they had a plan for Russia in the 2020s. Because he, you know, he saw peak oil in 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 2020. That was his forecast. 
And that, that, you know, places like Saudi Arabia, you know, other places in the Middle East, places that are dependent on these resources, as they begin to see that, that opportunity unwind, you know, become restless in many ways. And, and, and so, um, you know, that, that's obviously a concern. I think, um, you know, I can't explain the Ukraine war, right? This is one man who's, who's taken, a, you know, certain decisions. And, and you can never predict that. But, you know, what's interesting, what I find interesting um, from the edge looking at this is you can see elements of this new kind of distributed world emerging. Right? So, you, you know, you see the Russians and their supposedly incredible hacking operation being completely outclassed by this distributed, you know, this distributed organization or, or sort of unorganization that's emerged of, of anonymous and various other hackers coming in from around the world. And, and overwhelming the Russians, who are this kind of centralized hierarchical organization, they can't compete. You know, we've seen a number of, of military units kind of self-assemble, self-organize, come together from international veterans and, 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 and form together. We've seen sort of crowdsource funding come together. And that's the kind of, you know, elements of the distributed world that you can see. And it's much more powerful than kind of centralization and hierarchy. And that's really the Russians' problem. And I, I read today that Putin is taking kind of low-level military decisions. It's a real kind of command and control structure. And you can never compete with a much more distributed network system. And that's why I think these kind of centralized hierarchical structures, not just countries, but businesses and other organizations that are built that way, will just be outcompeted by these new Network structure. So you have a network effect. You harness the ability of millions. They're self-learning kind of organisms, almost. Um, and 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 those old kind of you know what we term extraction-based organizations just can't compete. And you can see the seeds of it in Ukraine today. Um, a friend was telling me the other day that the uh, the river attack that made the news the news um, mm. a couple of days ago was apparently essentially run on what the rest of us would recognize as Uber, which is that the <laughs> uh, the drone systems identify where the targets are and then put out network calls to the available resources to take on the challenge. And they look for the resources that are the closest to the target and then pass the messages through to them. So there you go. That's a, network yeah, that's, response. That's right. um, I was aware of the fact when you were talking about all this stuff, you, you were remarkably um, uh, low low key on what everyone else seems to shout about which is ai right what's your thinking of of ai because you you talked a lot about uh, the price of transport driving towards zero or transport being available at sort of zero cost and food cost dropping and uh, resource cost dropping and if we then start making uh, the cost of everything zero. I'm not quite sure why people need to work. And if you then offload everybody's intelligence requirements onto AI, I'm not sure why you need people to work. So what? Yeah. So if if we don't need to work because everything's arriving at our door for free, and if we aren't needed for work because everything's being done by smart systems, then apart from popping out to the pub occasionally, why why do I leave home? Yeah, I mean, great great question. So. I mean, it might help to think about what technology is to start with. So, so I mean, in our, in our, the way we look at the world, I mean, you know, the foundations of the physical world are matter, energy, and information, right? And, and, and we use technology, we apply knowledge, really, to matter, energy, to manipulate matter, energy, and information to make the things we need, 
But that's and, and that's essentially what technology is. It's it's a I guess a practical application of knowledge. And 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 so there are there are core technologies that we think are kind of going to disrupt everything. There are energy technologies, there are there are information technologies, and there are sort of you know material and 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 and, and, and matter-based technologies, and they all converge and interact in, 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 in certain ways. And computer processing and AI, you know, critical information technologies and, and critical, you know, the, the, the AI that disrupts transportation will be the AI that disrupts labor more generally or part of labor more generally. And, 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 and it's going to be an extraordinary period. There are risks that come with that, and there always are with these changes, but there are huge opportunities as well. And, and yes, further out into the future, we will transform the way we think about work. I mean, we'll have our needs met, right? Our, and, and you know, whatever that we, whatever those needs are, they'll be available very cheaply. So we'll have a new way of providing for each other. So the, you know, the concept of universal basic income, which is kind of unaffordable today, will become eminently affordable in the future. Um, you know, these systems that are emerging are really a challenge of capital. You know, they're all upfront cost to build and very little kind of marginal cost. Uh, and, and so the challenge is, 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 is that capital. And we can talk about that separately. But I mean, the, the question you asked was about work and, and, and labor. And you're right, we'll just reconceive of what work is and what reward is. So, you know, we'll still need, you know, this will be a long, steady period. Not, not all the jobs won't go tomorrow. But, you know, we'll probably be involved in much more creative or empathetic things. We'll find new ways to give our lives purpose. Uh, we'll We'll find all other ways of kind of interacting and, and building stronger and more resilient communities. So we will, you know, I can't say what that will be in the future, but you know, we are creative, uh, curious beings, and that'll lead us to do things that we can't even conceive of. Now, I, I don't think we need to know what those things are today, and necessarily plan for them. What we need to plan for is massive change. And so, you know, what I teach my kids really more than anything is to be comfortable with change. To kind of you know, it's, I mean, it's almost a Buddhist philosophy of shedding attachment to the past, and and and, and attachment to the need for stability. And Jamie, if I can, if I can frame what you're saying there, but a couple of questions from uh, elsewhere. So Tom Garnier was asking a question about schooling, and Alex Gatwood's asking a question about employment. Uh, and the two questions are kind of related to what you're saying about we're, we're human beings who who love being interested, but there's a certain reality that you can't teach old dogs new tricks. So what Alex was wondering is, you know, what are the implications for employment within certain markets? You know, which market's going to win, which market's going to lose? And what Tom's wanting to know is the obvious follow-on question to that, which is what do schools like Radley and others do to prepare children to cope with the massive changes that you are suggesting will be happening? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very difficult to say who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers. But what I will say is, you know, it could be a great leveler. You know, energy costs, for instance, in India will be far lower than they will be in the UK or Germany because they don't have this problem of having to build massive overcapacity to get through winter. So, so you know, our costs might be five or six times their costs, and that underpins the rest of the economy. Um, so, you know, there are advantages in, in, in certain parts of the world that aren't necessarily the leaders today. But ultimately, to make this transition, to, 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 to get the benefits of the full systems transformation um, is not an easy thing for us to do within our current structures. 
Um, very difficult for a Western government to totally redesign the way it functions and build a much more kind of integrated, interconnected kind of network system and, and break out of the silos, essentially, that we current, currently see the world in. So it's actually, I mean, it's one of the reasons why disruption always comes from the edge, you know, whether it's a, a company being disrupted or a region being disrupted. It's because of that kind of baggage of incumbency, you know, those who are doing well. There are lots of interests and incentives and actually the whole mindset that doesn't allow you to change. You know, I mean, it's, it's what we're doing today. You know, we, we you know, we, we, we um, you know, we, rather than recognizing that there's a fundamentally new system emerging, we tend to try and patch up the old. It's kind of like trying to build a faster horse to compete with the car. You know, that, that's the analogy I would use is we spend a lot of time trying to, trying to improve the old rather than um, accept that it's fundamentally different. And so I, I think Western governments, and we write this in our book, will struggle. But there might be some innovators. There might be regions within those areas that can, that, that can do it. It might be that Texas can go, but not the US federally, for instance. I mean, it's, it, it requires a kind of openness to experimentation. But we're not going to know what the kind of winning formula is. But we need to get going on it. Sophie, uh, Torrance and Nick Stoop have asked a couple of questions that are related as well. So, so Sophie's arguing something you just alluded to there, that it's all very well having some of these amazing new technologies, but some of our old technologies, um, you know, some of our subtractive methods, uh, rather than the additive methods of 3D printing or whatever, some of these subtractive methods actually still scale really well and still cost very little and are highly efficient. Nick Stoops making the point that all of these new technologies uh, are going to be resource limited in some way and, and that, you know, that there's a limit to how much lithium and cobalt we've we found so far. It, are these sort of the attractions of sticking with old technologies because we've got the resources and because we've got the know-how? How does that frame around the need of the new technologies to start completely new industries for finding more resources that we aren't necessarily using at scale at the moment. And does this, I mean, we saw this with oil and coal and everybody worried about running out of oil and running out of coal and, and running out of oil and running out of coal. We never did run out of oil or run out of coal. And so the old industries have just carried on going, carried on going. What, what happens if we do run out of lithium and we do run out of cobalt or will it be the same story? And it is the real lesson for all these young people is that if you go into geology, you're definitely safe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's always a story, right? I mean, you know, we are hugely innovative, and we find new ways to do things. So, you know, the the the, the scares of um, resource scarcity have never come true, and if they do come true, we just find a substitute or something else. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're, we're you know, it, it there never was a peak in oil supply. There was a peak in oil demand, which looks to be in the rearview mirror right now. And 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 I think we'll see, you know, the same in all kinds of other reasons. There isn't a shortage of lift or any of the other minerals that we need, there's a shortage of processing capacity, right? So we might well see a bottleneck for two, three, even four years while we ramp that up because people haven't anticipated how quickly this will happen. We haven't built up the whole value chain. But as people catch up, you know, we, we'll, 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 we'll see massive price spikes and shortages, presumably for a few years. But then over time, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the solution to, to, to kind of high prices is high prices, right? You get, you know, all the processing and the supply built up and they drop and, 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 and we continue on our merry way down the, down the cost curve. So I don't see any, any issues longer term. Sure, there are short-term bottlenecks, 
I mean, you know, God, you know, go back to the, the kind of the car being, you know, disrupting the horse, right? Back then, you know, there, were, there, were no, there was no oil industry at all, right? And we had to build this. We had to discover oil, discover kind of distilling processes and so on and so forth and build the whole industry alongside um, the car industry. And, and yeah, it was a little bumpy, but we did it. And, and, it, and it barely made a dent in you know, the adoption profile of, of, of vehicles. And, and, and so... I mean, there's this this wonderful book actually that I'd recommend because these you know these are, are questions that come up time and time again. Written by David Deutsch, who's the sort of um, I guess the father of quantum computing. It's called the the beginning of infinity, and he talks about a lot of these issues. And 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 you know what he really says is is you know progress is essentially infinite. You know we can we can do anything that the laws of physics allow. It's really a question of developing the knowledge, and we're on an extraordinary a fast trajectory now but you know all of these problems are solvable ultimately we'll find new ways of producing energy and, and so on but um but ultimately you know every new every new problem creates new so every new solution creates new problems and so the way forward really is 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 you know he, he says only progress is truly sustainable that we you know we solve problems we create new ones and we continue to solve them and at every step it's unsustainable until redeemed by the next step and it's this constant progress of, of uh, process of problem solving, and it's 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 um, it's difficult to stand here today, and 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 see the potential issues. You know, in the same way I've been standing in 1905 and thought about the issues of having no paved roads, no oil industry, you know, no trained mechanics, no supply chain for cars. It would have looked like we could never scale that industry, but you know, it took 20 years in America to go from from. Um, less than 5% of the vehicles on the road being cars to being over 95%, right? That's the S-curve, massive change in 20 years. And, and, and that happened despite huge obstacles, you know, much bigger than the obstacles we see today to most of these, these, these issues. So it, it's, um, you know, the, the, these tend to be um, speed bumps rather than kind of obstacles. Will Gardner's asking the question, you were talking about universal basic income and you're talking about the, our likely successes in the future there. But he, he's asking a, a, the sort of slightly aggressive question that um, what tends to happen to the profits at the moment in all these amazing startups is they tend to accrue to a few people in Silicon Valley and that the, the sort of the great unwashed public tend to get a slightly raw deal out of it. And there's certainly people out there who seem to argue that we're drifting to back towards some sort of Victorian society where we've got fewer barons at the top and a lot more people at the bottom who are on sort of sustainable levels of income, but not much more. And if that sustainable level of income is universal basic income, you can imagine governments trying to keep universal basic income as low as possible. That word basic will will shine through. So how, how do we make sure that the benefits of these very complex technologies um, which require a lot of very smart people to run them how do we make sure those benefits are are fairly distributed and, and that's a critical question and, and and that's um it's what we talk about in our book and, and actually you know you know we think there's a potential for inequality to be at a far greater level than it is today and in, in really geeky terms what's ultimately happening in in our language is that information is disrupting matter and energy right so the, 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 the valuable part of all these industries are the information platforms, right? That manages this dynamic energy system or the transportation fleet. You know, car manufacturing becomes commoditized in this world, and 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 and, and, and so it's less 
interesting. So all the value accrues to information. And, and you know, information, um, you know, suffers from network effects, essentially meaning that you get a winner-take-all dynamic. You know, it's not like economies of scale where you get a number of winners. So, yeah, absolutely, there'll be, you know, huge, um, you know, potentially huge inequality. And we, you know, it's a sort of, we talk about this in, in, in Rethinking Humanity. There's a sort of world that might emerge, a kind of dystopia, you know, where we're essentially like caged lions. You know, we're watered and fed and housed. We've got no real freedoms. And, and, and you know, there's a zookeeper off there with all the, you know, all the money and all the profits. And, 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 absolutely, and that's really, um, you know, that's what will happen if we just have a transformation of our production system without the way we organize society changing. But I guess what we're saying is we have the potential to change society in a fundamental way, in the way we didn't have before. Right. So, you know, a much more equal distribution of profits is possible. It hasn't historically been possible because society is in a, in, a, in a kind of world of extraction. You know, the old model, which has existed for the history of civilization. You know, if you don't kind of incentivize progress, you kind of get outgrown and outcompeted by someone who does. And this is why communism and, 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 and you know, this is why really why, um, you know, countries or regions that have tried to live too sustainably or too equitably have failed. They've been overtaken by others who haven't because that's the driver. That's the incentive in the kind of world of scarcity. When you're not in a world of scarcity, that, that kind of dynamic disappears. So, um, yeah, it's a critical issue. And we need we need to make sure and do everything we can to, to make sure it happens. But you know there will be some real dystopias in parts of the world. What we yeah, hope is, I mean, Ed Charles is asking that question uh, along with uh, other people who, who are all wanting you to tell them what they should invest in next. But Ed's making the interesting point. What, what's your view on uh, environmental and and social investment strategies? How, how do we incentivize markets to be? Uh, more enthusiastic about doing the right thing rather than simply following as what you're suggesting a sort of capitalist um, competitive market, which is almost bound to encourage people to slightly do the wrong thing so that, as you say, they can avoid some of the constraints that environment and social pressures will, will bring on them. The, the winners will be the people who tend to ignore those constraints. And that's something that our current government is sort of doubling down on, isn't it? Is let's remove constraints. But but does that really work to the best of society? And how do we encourage more pressure on the right solution? Yeah, I, I struggle with this because I, I I come from that world. I spent a lot of time in in kind of clean tech investing and 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 that kind of world. And I and I I think it's a difference of viewpoint, right, as to whether this is about top down solutions imposed from above. Or whether they're bottom up, and 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 I kind of you know the analogy I'd use is that you know the way I see it is that you know the boulders at the top of the hill, and the job of government and regulation is to give it a shove and get it rolling down the hill, and that might be by you know subsidising prices so that they become competitive earlier and they get on those cost curves, and then market forces take over, and and the other job is to make sure that the as the boulder trundles down the hill, it doesn't do too much damage. Right, to protect the communities and the people that are affected by change. That's a really important piece of this. I think that there's a sort of top-down perspective to these issues where, you know, we kind of feel like we're at the bottom of the hill and we, we've got to, you know, struggle to push the boulder up the hill and using all available resources, whereas tax and regulation and, 
regulation and um, restrictions on consumption and all kinds of things. And I, I just don't think we're in that place. I think that sort of all of the above approaches is, is, is the wrong and can lead us down the wrong alleyway, actually. We can, we can end up doing stuff that we think is helpful that actually takes us off track and is deeply unhelpful. Um, so, um, you know, I think, I think the ESG movement is a good one and I think it's an important one. But it's about making sure that these disruptions, that you know, market forces will be the primary deliverer of this new system, and 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 that's a good thing, right? Because that's what always disrupts industries, and it's the job of, of ESG and regulation and, and, and so on to keep them on track and just make sure that we're not we're not causing kind of un, you know unexpected or unwanted damage as we go along. But it's not the it's not the primary driver of this change. Katrina Quinton is making the point that uh, the changing society is a bit different from changing human nature and that cage lions, as you talk about, might, might actually start to bite back. Uh, how, how do we persuade society that things are going to change and they need to change with them? I mean, I guess it to some extent comes back to Tom Garnier's point about what the schools need to do um, and to other points about you know, how do we persuade um, old dogs to perform new tricks or or do we only get new dogs to perform the new tricks? In which case, how do we pension off all the all the old dogs who aren't keen to embrace, you know, microbe proteins um, and three dimensional printers in their houses? Yeah, I'm not. I'm you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I have a you know a, a, a perfect answer for that. I, th I think the education question is a is a, is a really good one. Um, you know, I think you know there's, there's you know I don't think anyone would argue that you know we're going to see massive transformation. And maybe a change to really what education means and how it, I mean, you know, education will be disrupted in terms of how it's delivered, but also what is delivered, right? And so, you know, both mechanisms will be changed. And I think, I think there's a potential for, you know, I mean, there's no reason now with the technology we have for anyone in the world to have a bad teacher or a suboptimal teacher, really. We should have, you know, the best teaching, you know, everywhere in the world. Uh, in, in terms of what we teach, you know, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to know. I think there's, um, I mean, there's, 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 I think, I think it's Moravec's paradox, which said, you know, which says what's easy for AI, sorry, what's easy for us is difficult for AI, and what's difficult for AI is easy for us. So, you know, things like fine motor skills and empathy and creativity, you know, we we do naturally super difficult for for AI. Things like, you know advanced mathematics and physics and engineering actually much easier for AI because they're kind of rules based. So, um, you know, it might be that we, we concentrate on the, you know, eventually, and I'm not saying, you know, STEM isn't important now, of course it is, but, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out, actually having the collaborative skills, having the personal skills and the empathetic skills and, 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 and actually um, doing everything we can to work on and amplify our creativity, I think is going to be super interesting. I mean, I mean, super important. I mean, you, you know, those people who find change difficult will be the, the ones who struggle, and those who aren't kind of curious and interested in 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 in, in and, and motivated will find it very difficult. And I think, and here's, I think a frightening, that's the here's a frightening thought: What if the people who find change difficult are sixty-year-old dinosaur teachers like me who aren't exposed on a daily basis to the sort of discussions that you're involved with and so we're the ones who aren't driving change because 
it's not in our interest to do that. We're not seeing much change coming at us. Yeah. Uh, do you think part of the problem might be that our education system isn't exposed to enough of the, the messages that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, disruption comes from the edge. So, I mean, I think it's much harder for Radley or Oxford or, you know, any big institution to disrupt themselves. I think what will happen is we'll see disruption come from the edge. We'll see new models emerge that begin to disrupt you, and you'll be forced to adapt. Um, I mean, it, it, it tends to be the way. So, um, and, 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 and that's the point about this. This is a sort of bottom-up emergent process in some ways, rather than one we kind of plan from the top down. And it's, you know, that's difficult. But I think, that, you know, the secret for Radley is to be aware of what's going. You know, don't be like kind of VW or BMW, these businesses that ignored electric vehicles until it was far too late and now are desperately scrabbling to catch up but they're building you know they're still they still haven't understood what the real disruption is so they need to become software companies um and 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 so you know it, it's really about just thinking much more broadly and 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 um and and and, and being aware of you know what's possible there's a great book by jeffrey west you may have read called scale He's yeah a physicist absolutely. talking about uh, the way that scale impacts on animals and on businesses and on cities. And I was amused by you mentioning uh, Radley and Oxford in the same breath there, because Radley is about 150 years old and 175 years old. It's, in fact, precisely 175 years old now I think about it. Um, uh, and some of the businesses you've just mentioned, you know, have, have been lucky to last that long. And one of the points that West makes in his book is that companies don't always survive. But he makes the point that cities do, and it's hard not to notice that Oxford University has actually managed to survive for the best part of a thousand years, and it seems to have coped with disruption pretty well. So, so what's the difference between you know companies full of really smart people that don't seem to cope and university-type cities that seem to just keep trundling along for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, despite the fact that if you look at them from the outside, you'd say there's lots of very sort of dull academics in those institutions who aren't very influenced by the reality of what you're talking about. Yeah, but I, 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 I think it's the difference between a hierarchy and a, and a kind of distributed, it's almost, you know, an, a, a, a distributed organism at some level. You know, I mean, cities go bankrupt and they fail and they have all kinds of problems over time, but they, they reorganize and they adapt. Um, and, 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 you know, in the same way that nature does and ecosystems do. And I think, I think that sort of distributed um, structure helps them. And, and universities, you know, I mean, I've, was a, I remember hearing universities described as a, a, a bunch of professors connected by a communal heating system or something. I mean, they're, you, know, they're, they're, you know, it is a, a kind of distributed system by its nature, right? And, and, and I think that's much more adaptable. I think, I think where you get hierarchical structures, kind of command and control, very difficult to adapt. Very good in, in, in those equilibrium phases, right, where nothing much is changing and all you're doing is, you know, working on selling more or reducing your costs. Or I mean, great for command and control. But in a period of change and every sector of the economy and every part of society is about to go through that, you need these much more distributed learning organizations that compete. You know, we, we talk about kind of building organizations as mycelium networks, Right. You don't want a real center. You want to be sharing information and resources across a network and responding to threats and opportunities in a way that you can't do through kind of command and control. Uh, yeah, that is really interesting. The idea that, that society goes in kinds of peaks and troughs between 
equilibrium type positions and then dramatic change and that you need different management structures at the time. And we've only and got different ways of thinking. Yeah, and different Absolutely. ways of thinking. Yeah. Um, I, I want to give you the last couple of minutes because we're going to finish at seven. And Jamie, I want you, you to just gather your thoughts as to what, you know, what are the three key points you'd like us to take away? Uh, but I do want to just quote what Ed Giles has just put onto um, the chat, which is he makes the very obvious observation that the fact that we're all sitting on Zoom listening to this talk is in itself uh, a pretty good example of major disruption happening uh, in 2022. Uh, with with that thought in mind, you know what what are what are the three things you'd want us to absolutely take away, Jamie? In particular, you know, bearing in mind we've all got a link to Radley and we've all got an interest in in education. Yeah, I, I, I guess the key points, you know, one, you know, change is coming at us fast. You know, two, the impact of that change is going to be far greater and far more profound, I think, than most people realize. But thirdly, the the biggest barrier to change are our kind of mindsets, the way we see the world, that this desire for kind of safety and stability that makes us want to patch up the old rather than accelerate the new. And I think that's, you know, that's that's the biggest threat is that we, you know, we, we cling on to what we had and try and, and, and try and kind of patch it up and rebuild it. And we don't understand that actually there's something much better that could come. But, you know, it's a totally different world. It's a bottom-up world and not a top-down world. And I think... I think mindset's our biggest challenge going forward. Final question on exactly that then. If you had to choose between the two, well-being or resilience? I mean, you know, you can't separate them. <laughs> they feed into each other. They're interconnected. Well, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave it at that, Jamie. Um, that was really, really interesting. And um, thank you so much for answering all those questions and for giving us such a... Um, helpful guide to um, the scary and crazy place that the world is becoming, as you so uh, nicely put it. Um, a, a huge, huge thank you on behalf of uh, of all the um, all of those of us who are online, uh, and a sort of huge round of applause in the sort of silent way that that happens on on Zoom at this at this point. Um, and can I, um, having said thank you, uh, hand back to uh, to Caroline? Thank absolutely you. absolutely i just want to echo my thanks thanks to you um ian you were an excellent compare really good to hear you and uh, jamie sparring um and thanks jamie so much for your time because i know you're you're exceedingly busy as are you ian of course um so the next big big thinking talk will be in june more details on the topic to follow and uh, we hope to see you on the call then thank you bye-bye thank you for joining us Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radleyan Society.